like to add my welcome to Andrews at the start of the meeting. It's great to see so many of you here. Um, as Andrew mentioned, we are looking at Psalm 139. So it'd be really helpful for me uh, if it'd be really helpful for me if you had your Bibles open to Psalm 139. If you're using the Church Bibles, that's on page 444. And also what might be helpful is uh, if you receive one of these uh, uh, bulletins as you came in, uh, on the central page there's an outline uh, which will give you an idea of where we're going with this. But before we start, uh, let me pray. Lord, do thank you for gathering us all here. Lord, do thank you for the privilege that we have to look at your word. Lord, I pray that you'll help me as I open up this passage uh, today. Lord, I also pray that... Uh, you help us by your spirit to understand what you have to say to us through your word. Lord, I pray that we'll be encouraged by what's said. Lord, I also pray that we'll, uh, we'll be seeking to apply it to our lives in the coming weeks. Uh, we ask these things in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In 1948, George Orwell started a book that would change the way many of us would look at the world. It was his view of the future. In it, He imagined a point where one unidentified individual would control the people that he led by means of knowing everything about them. CCTV cameras watched every move of the citizens. Spies and microphones recorded every word that was spoken. The government of the country seemed so pervasive that even the thoughts of the people seemed to be scrutinized. The picture painted by Orwell was one of a nightmare where the power of of knowledge was used to invoke tyrannical authority over the citizens. Well, that book is, of course, 1984. And even if you've never read it, you've probably heard some of the terms from it, such as Big Brother, Thought Police, Room 101, and so forth. All these terms are coined by Orwell in that book. And in fact, today, whenever discussion is made of envision of privacy... Um, it's brought up um, and it's t- talk is made of us being brought in to an Orwellian society it's something to be feared because in Orwell's vision knowledge meant control which inevitably led to oppression so I wonder how many of you uh, had the same horrific idea as Orwell um, during our Old Testament reading from Psalm 139 for many of us the ideas won't sit comfortably We will wonder whether this God, described by by David, um, is the big brother that Orwell imagined. Well, we're going to join David as he struggles with that very idea. The idea uh, of who God is and what does that mean for my life. So let's jump straight in. And in the first few verses, we see that David begins his thoughts by considering the extent of God's knowledge to him. We see that from the very first verse. And David says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me, and you, uh, searched me and you know me. In, the, in case we are tempted to think that we are talking about the knowledge that we claim to have for a friend or for a workmate, David goes on to expand on what this means in the next few verses. You know where I, when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down, You're familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. Well, 
it's fairly clear that this is something beyond what you would expect to be the case between two people who would claim to know each other. We may be able to say that we know a, a good friend um, of ours well, uh, but it would be nothing compared to this. Um, one of my best friends from back home is a guy called Matthew. Um, he went to my high school, and because we had similar interests, and uh, we sort of hit it off, and we've become really good mates. Now, I can tell you a lot about him. I could give you a description of what he looks like. Uh, I could tell you what he's interested in. He happens to be football crazy, and he, ho he supports a small, insignificant team called Tottenham Hotspur or something like that. Um, if I really wanted to, I could even tell you where he lives uh, and tell you where he works. But if you were to ask me right now uh, what he was doing, well, I just wouldn't know. Well, actually saying that, uh, back home it's probably about 4 a.m. in the morning, so I'd probably guess he was sleeping. Uh, but even if I did get that one right, press me uh, to give you further, uh, further details about what he's done in the last 24 hours, and I'm just stumped. And that's just asking about stuff that I could figure out if I just watched him. You haven't even begun to ask me what he was thinking while he was doing all those things. Not to mention what he's going to do in the next 24 hours. And yet David says that God knows all that about him. Not only does God know what we're doing, he knows what we're thinking, and also what we're about to do. Well, I'm just wondering, if we were David, what would our response be to that? How would we react to what he's seen? Think about it. What's our response to what we've learnt in the first four verses? And that is that God seems to know everything about us. And there's nothing that we do escapes God's notice. In this day, we seem to get more and more threatened by the idea of losing our privacy because of things like CCTV cameras and the scanning of messages that you send from your computer or your handphone. And we may feel very uncomfortable about this. So let's see what David's reaction is, is to this. And you can see that in verse 5. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Well, we see that there's an extent to which David does share the concerns that we might have. The term he uses in verse 5, uh, you hemmed me in, you hemmed me in, sorry, uh, it's the same term that would be used in a siege. If you were in a castle and you looked out and there was an army encamped outside uh, keeping you in the castle, well, in that case, you'd be hemmed in. You'd be unable to move away from the enemy. And as a result, there's a, there, there's a thought that David is feeling claustrophobic, almost intimidated by God's knowledge. For David, this is, this is just beyond his comprehension. He struggles to understand the extent of all of this. And this is all very understandable. You see, being hemmed in is, is fearsome. If the one hemming you in is the enemy, being under siege is, is scary. If those outside mean you harm. But for us, if we are believers, then God isn't the enemy, is he? If we look further on uh, in the Bible, we, see, we get to teaching, Jesus teaching his disciples not to fear those who will threaten their lives. And here's the reason that he gives in Matthew chapter 10 for them not to fear. Let me read that out to you. Are two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. 
And, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Jesus, in encouraging his disciples not to, not to worry, tells them the extent of the Father's knowledge for them. He encourages them that he knows things about them that they don't even know about themselves. You see, if God is on our side, the fact that he knows us personally and completely, it should be a massive encouragement. And this would change our idea of what we think about being hemmed in, as David describes here. You see, if the army outside isn't the enemy, well, then you're not being under siege. They're not besieging you. Well, they're guarding you. But still, for David, even that reassurance may not be enough. See, we, like David, still sometimes don't consider the thoughts of God's knowledge of us to be comfortable. And so while it's right to wonder and marvel at God's intimate knowledge of ourselves, there's another reaction that we're likely to consider. And that would be to run away. And this is the reaction David turns to consider in the next few verses. He asks himself the question, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? After all, if we want to stop someone from knowing us, well, all we have to do is avoid them. So for my friend Matt, if he wants, to, uh, wants me to stop knowing him enough to stop using him as sermon illustrations, well then all he would have to do is avoid me, or in his case, stay in Belfast and let me avoid him. Um, but we can see, as David considers this in the next few verses, that the answer to his question is a fairly emphatic one. Let me read that out to you. If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle at the far end of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. You see, no matter where the psalmist looks or goes, he sees that God will be with him. And just to make this clear, he takes us on a trip to show us. So first of all, he, take, he, he arrives in the heavens as far as up as you can go, and God is there. Then, he takes us to the depths of the earth. Now I should point out that the word translated in our Bibles as depths is the Hebrew word sheol, and can be translated as the grave or death. So the psalmist takes us to the grave himself. And even and yet God is still there. Even leaving this life is not enough to escape God's reach. Furthermore, he tries to flee um, by travelling to the ends of the earth. But then again he finds that God he simply cannot outrun God. Even on the far side of the sea or by chasing across the land, God is just as present at the destination as he was at the point of departure. So okay, we've got no real hope of, uh, of getting away from God by running. So we're going to have to try and consider a new tactic here. And in verse 11 and 12, David does indeed try something different. Let me read that again. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. So what's David saying? 
He's saying, well, maybe if I stay in the dark places, he'll just not see me. But it's to no avail. Even the darkness cannot hide David from the view of God. It's becoming clear that God is quite simply inescapable. No matter where we go or what we do, we are always in view of God. Again, it's, it's easy to feel uncomfortable about this. But I do want you to notice verse 10. We've sort of skipped over it, so, let, so allow me to read it out again. David says this, Even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Even in the consideration of how we are to flee God's presence, there is time to praise God for the impossibility of the task. And this is because God being with us is indeed a reason to rejoice. Because if he is with us, he will guide us and keep us safe. Yet again, it's this encouragement that Jesus gives his disciples when he's sending them out into the world. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, he gathers his disciples and he tells them this. And this is in Matthew uh, 28. All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey, my, obey everything I have commanded you. So that's their task. That's what they're sent out to do. And here's the encouragement he gives them. And surely I am with you always to the ends of the age. The disciples must have been scared. But this is the encouragement that Jesus gives them. I will always be with you. You will not escape me. To the disciples, this isn't threatening it's definitely a reason to rejoice. The one who has all authority, God himself, will be with them as they carry out his mission. Rather than a reason to be afraid, God's inescapable presence is a reassurance not to be afraid. Again though, this is not a comfortable idea. Even though we can accept in our minds that God's presence is for our good, it still doesn't need us to be happy with the idea that God is everywhere and he's watching our every thought and action. And part of this is probably because we have this niggling thought in the back of our minds. Why is God watching us? After all, we know our rights. Uh, you can claim that what, that what you're doing is for our, uh, our own good, but that doesn't give you a right to invade privacy for no reason. So to be blunt, the question is this. What right does God have to be so intrusive? Well, that seems to be precisely what David goes on to consider in the next verses. Let me remind you of them. For you created my, uh, my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Well, we might as well keep this one short. God made us. And that's the answer to our question. God has a right to know everything about in our lives... Because he is the one who created us. Like many of you know, were our word, that until uh, very recently, in fact until this July, I was a university student. But it may come as a surprise to you all that uh, given my clear eloquence and my thoughtful discourse, that I was an engineering student. Um, or at least that might go some way to explaining the lack of thoughtful discourse and eloquence. Anyway, basically what engineers do is make things and it's great fun, but that's beside the point. Let me, let's say one day I come up with an invention that's surely going to change the world. 
Now, I've already mentioned that I'm an engineer, so I've, I don't have a great imagination. So I'm going to leave it to your own thoughts to think what this life-changing invention might be. Of course, if you do come up with something, do let me know. Um, so, but anyway, whatever it is, um, I would automatically have control over, it, um, over what I want to do with my new life-changing gadget. No one would be able to tell me what I should do with it. I made it. It's mine. And so I have authority to do with it what I please. So just as my creation, so to speak, gives me the authority over my invention, God's creation of us automatically means that we are his, and he has authority to do with us what he will. Now, just before I, just before I make this sound particularly sinister, it's worth noting the comments that David has on this fact. So have a quick look with me, again, at verses 13 to 16. This is what David says. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days, were, uh, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Thankfully, having God's exercise as well bodes a lot better for you than anything that, uh, that may be done by some Northern Irish engineering graduate. For a start, God takes great care in his creation of us. The image we're given of God is of his hand-making us, so to speak. He knits us together. I'm not sure if you've ever witnessed anyone knitting a jumper, and considering the climate in this part of the world, I would suspect that many of us haven't. But let me tell you that it's a fairly meticulous process. Every little stitch is thought about, and every feature of the piece of clothing is carefully planned. The whole thing takes much time and effort. After all, you're not going to get that prettily decorated cardigan if you just grab a, a peel of wool and tie it together randomly. And it's this careful process that David uses to describe God's care in his creation. Furthermore, we see that he doesn't just create things and let it go. We see that at the end of verse 16, that all of our days are planned for us. God doesn't just leave us and let us turn out according to what chance says. And that's why his eye is constantly watching David. And his hand is constantly upon him. It's out of concern for his people, for the people that he creates, that he watches out for them. And this all spawns from the idea that he created them. So he's not just going to abandon them. Everyone here has been created by God, and this psalm is telling you this. You are significant. You mean something to God. And he does care for you. And so it should be no surprise to us to hear the praise that David offers up in 17 and 18. And I hope we can offer it up ourselves. This is what he says. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast are the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Here we have the realization that the character of God, that he has beforehand been tempted to think as intrusive, are in fact precious. How great a thing is it to be thought of by such, to such a degree by God. 
so we've got to this point in the psalm and it just it's feeling like we've got to a climax we've learnt much about God and how he relates to believer we've seen that he knows us intimately and he is always with us but he created us and he cared for us but that's not how the psalm finishes let me read verses 19 to 24 if only you would slay the wicked O God away from me you bloodthirsty men they speak of you with evil intent your adversaries misuse your name do I not hate those who hate you O Lord and abhor those who rise up against you I have nothing but hatred for them I count them as my enemies wow that seems to be a fairly radical change of direction there just seems to be that massive change between verse 18 and 19 so what's happened um, have we slipped into another psalm uh, should, we, uh, should we have just stopped at verse 18 well sadly for me the answer is no uh, <laughs> but to understand why this, psalm fi- this portion fits into the psalm we're going to have to consider what we've already seen we have seen that God is our creator and so he has authority over us furthermore we have seen that this authority is not exercised tyrannically it is an authority exercised in love for his people and so while it would be right to rise up against the Norwellian big brother someone who has no right to authority and abuses his power to reject the rightful loving rule of God is a totally depraved thing to do in addition to this we have seen that God knows everything everywhere so the actions of these wicked people must be known by God and so David appeals to God to take action to judge those who rebel against his rule and to assert his rightful authority basically David is appealing to God to do what he should rightfully do and also while doing that he is placing his allegiance with God but there is a problem and I wonder if you've noticed it we've noted that these wicked men do not accept the rightful authority of their creator they are people who have said to God I don't want to live your way I want to live the way I want to and my friends this is what the Bible calls sin and we see from the rest of the Bible that we're all guilty of it and I want to tell you that David is no exception to this so although we may have been nodding our heads along and saying yeah yeah the wicked should be judged come on God right we've we've got a really big problem here because for God to judge the wicked means that he must judge us as well so what can uh, so and if that's going to happen we're not going to be declared innocent of ourselves so what can we do well I reckon the answer is alluded to in our New Testament reading from the book of Hebrews Um, we're told there that all things in creation are led there and we will have to give an account to God and this of course means that we will have to open ourselves up to judgment as well but hear what it has to say next and you can follow along on the screen 
For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of whom we must give an account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who, who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So the writer is telling us that because everything we have, to, uh, because in everything we have to give an account to God, therefore we are to cling on to the faith we profess. And that faith is in Jesus as our high priest. Now just to let you know, this is an allusion to the Old Testament where the priests would have offered up sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. And Jesus is the one who is able to present to God a sacrifice that will finally atone for us, will finally cleanse us. And we know from the rest of the Bible that the sacrifice that Jesus offered to God is one of himself, of his own blood. On the cross, he took the punishment that we deserve. And on the cross, God indeed did judge the wicked. But that punishment, instead of falling on us as it deserved, it fell on Jesus. And because of that, have a look again at, at Hebrews 4 verse 16. And have a look at the encouragement that we're given in that. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. You see, by holding to firm in the faith in Christ, we, uh, we can have confidence to receive mercy and grace from God. So when David calls out from God to judge, he is looking forward to the cross. Because it is there that God can judge the wicked and yet allow believers like David and all of us in this room who are trusting in Christ to walk free. And that's how David can end the psalm with this prayer. And it's in verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Here David prays to God to search him. Not as we might think because he is confident of being found clean. But rather, it's more because he is confident that he won't. You see, the focus of the prayer is the last verse. He is calling on God to cleanse him of his unrighteousness and lead him to eternal life. And in doing that, he is holding to the same faith that we do. You see, we, can, we too can only call on God to cleanse us in his mercy. The difference is, 
for us, we know that in trusting in Jesus, in Christ's death, we can be confident of receiving that mercy. And so, for all of us trusting in the death of Christ on the cross, for our salvation, we can look at this psalm with great encouragement. Because we know that God who sees all, and is everywhere, is on our side. Or, should I say, we are on his. And most importantly, we know when it comes to judgment, when he comes in judgment, as he must, we can be confident of receiving undeserved mercy from him. All, and this is all because we trust in the God who created us and cares for us deeply. Let's never cease to be thankful for the thoughts that he has turned towards us. Let's pray along with the, with the psalmist. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast are the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this, uh, this passage in scripture. And Lord, I thank you for the encouragement that we have received from knowing that you are a God who creates us. And you're a God who cares for us deeply. And Lord, we thank you because you showed that, that care and love for us as you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in our place. Lord, I pray that we'll be totally trusting in that for our salvation and we living in confidence in light of the inheritance that we have waiting for us in heaven. For we ask these things in your name. Amen.